The wisdom of experts can change your life. As a co-chair at the University of Texas, you've attained this elite status from growing and evolving over the course of your coaching career. In our Learning from Experts podcast, exclusively for the head coaches here at the University of Texas, we're going to accelerate that process. You'll hear from world-class coaches, sports psychologists, and successful people. And occasionally, it's the wisdom that impacts other areas of your life, like your health or your marriage. But here's something really important to appreciate. Timing. Hearing something at exactly the right time makes all the difference. Sometimes it's repetition. Hearing a concept multiple times until it resonates with you. So buckle up. This week's Learning from the Experts is about to begin. Hey coaches, John Mitchell here. So this week we're hearing from USC football coach Lincoln Riley. Boy, this is a really interesting interview. Listen for the nightmare that he went through once he accepted the USC job and left Oklahoma. He literally had people breaking into his house. Also listen for how he handles losses. This is really interesting. You'll also learn how he embraces tough conversations. Tough conversations are something Lincoln actually likes. And one more thing, look forward to hearing about how Lincoln makes himself more efficient. Time is his most valuable commodity. So he's got some interesting tricks on how to save time and work efficiently. And then after we hear from Lincoln Riley, I'll recap what we learned. Then there's something else I want you to listen to. It's success expert Darren Hardy, arguably the top expert in the world on success. Over the years, I've been blessed to have gotten to know Darren personally. And simply put, he's brilliant. The reason I oftentimes give you content from Darren is because he's right to the point and he truly walks the walk. His wisdom is consistently enlightening and he makes you actually think. And he only takes about five minutes each time to share his wisdom. So listen today for how important it is to apply the Pygmalion effect on your athletes. Learn what the Pygmalion effect is and how it is scientifically proven to materially impact performance. And here's the essence of what you'll learn this week. Boy, life is a state of mind. It's all about how you look at things, what you focus on, and what meaning you give to things. You can control your mindset by spending a little time thinking about your mindset, like thinking about how you handle losses. So let's get started and listen to the wisdom of Lincoln Riley. And remember, hey, as a coach here at the University of Texas, boy, you're living the dream. Tell about these fishing playlists of yours. <laughs> We've got a, a fishing trip to Cabo San Lucas that we, we do every year. Uh, this, I think, will be our eighth or ninth one coming up. It started as just some, some guys that were down there and, and, and wanted to go fishing. We had a great time, and we're like, man, we should do this again the next year. And, uh, and then it's just continued. And of course, when you're, when you're fishing, you have to have great music. And so one of the guys on our trip has a, has a playlist. He's like, oh, we got to listen to this playlist. Well, it's like four songs long. And keep in mind, we're fishing like 14 hours a day. So we probably hear those four songs, you know, 20 times. Yeah. So by the end of the day, Clark is telling me, dude, we got to do something different. And so I grab my iPad, 
see what's on it that night. I make a playlist and everybody loves it, which after what we'd been through the previous day, it could have been the worst playlist ever. Yeah. And everybody would have still loved it. But yeah, so I start putting music on it. It's great. So then each year, it, it starts with the same playlist and we just add to it. So as the- But you won't let anybody create no. their own though. Okay. No. Yeah. They, what they do is they, they send me songs and I'll listen to it. And if I think it is worthy of our, of the AO, which we call it the always open. If it's if it's AO worthy, then uh, then it gets on the playlist. So each year it just gets added to. And so this trip of yours, from what I understand, is plane to boat to plane and yes. kind of nothing in between. Yes. Yeah, we go down there and flip flops. Each of us have a backpack that has probably one other swimsuit in it. We go straight to the boat. Yeah, I love it because no cell phones, no anything. I mean, they're off and, and you can just completely unplug and we strategically put it right before training camp each year so it's just kind of the perfect way to to cap the summer and and it's it's fun it's relaxing a chance to get away and uh yeah it's uh, now i don't know what we would do without it and what's this i hear about your dad actually having caught a bigger fish than you he has he has i like to think i've been nice to him you know letting him uh letting him handle the big one but he's uh he has, he's actually, he's got a bigger Mai Mai, they call it Dorada down there, and a bigger uh, Blue Marlin than I've caught. So he's got bragging rights. Why do you feel you always unplug a little bit more when you're out of the country? Uh, something about having to take your passport out, stamping it, you're in another place. Um, there's always a sense of me when I'm in the US that even when we're away, that I, I still have to be on a little bit. and. Yeah, Mexico has just always been a place that I can, especially there, because I, I, I've always felt comfortable and it's fun. And yeah, for some reason, the second I get south of the border, I, I can let go of everything else. So you have a place in Mexico. You have a favorite family place in New Mexico. Take me through an average day when on the family trip in New Mexico. Uh, average day. I get up really early there. Which, uh, that's what I heard, yeah. which is, yeah, I mean, you're on vacation. Yeah, vacation to me is not sleeping in. It's just doing what I want to do and having my own time. I've got only so much time, and, like, I want to be doing the things I want to do. He's never going to go sit still on a beach all day and, and be, we want to be active and do something together, so. And you're the same way? Same way. Okay. I can sit by a pool and read a book for about 30 minutes, and then you start getting antsy. And so we like to do something together actively but away so yeah i get up early uh grab a quick breakfast and then i get up there and fly fish by myself for for a few hours probably nobody else within miles um and and really really peaceful have a great time then i come back down and then with the girls uh the horseback ride enjoy time with the girls we'll typically go back out and explore a little bit after that but uh yeah that's kind of our that's our routine and all sorts of animals are there everything everything we've run into i mean bison all over the place bald eagles wild turkeys um yeah, deer elk i mean it's mountain lions bobcats you name it we, we've seen quite a bit they've learned to touch the fish and you know put the worm on the hook and he's encouraged them to to not be so girly and get dirty and, and do they like it they love it they okay. love it. They love just special time with him. So again, no cell phones. Zero. No TVs. Zero. Uh, but two boats. Two boats. And why is that? Uh, <laughs> uh, probably the competitiveness of us as, as fishermen. Um, 
So yeah, we'll, we'll get out there, we'll, we'll spread it out so that we can get more lines in the water, have more fun. We'll, a lot of times we'll have some little competition, whether it's me and the guys or the family. I was gonna say, even with the, the Caitlin, like it's two, two boats. Oh yes. I think just to have some type of competitiveness with it, there's, that's always fun for us. Um, somebody's gonna have bragging rights at the end of the day. Your brother, Garrett, six years younger, offensive coordinator at Clemson. I think he's in uh, eighth grade or early in high school at the time. You guys are at the lake and uh, Garrett's trying to score a beer off his older brother. <laughs> uh, take it from there. <laughs> I never thought I'd talk about this one on camera. Um, yeah, so me being the the big brother, said, "Well, if, you know, if, if you want a if you want a beer, you're gonna have to earn it." And uh, so he said, "What?" And I said, "Well, you guys gotta take all your clothes off, jump in the lake, see, just see if they do it." You know, they're they're in eighth grade; they probably do anything for a beer at that point. And uh, so they do it. We toss them a, a couple of beers, and I, I think I decided to. Uh, I think I moved the boat a little bit, decided to take off, kind of left them there for a few minutes. And uh, yeah, Caitlin stepped in and, and saved the day for them. Because they had no clothes. Zero. Yeah. Zero. Yeah, very big brother thing to do. Uh, he, he said you were, uh, <laughs> you would be pretty rough on him. We, we went at it. We, we did. It was, uh, it was funny when, when Garrett first came to Texas Tech and I was already coaching there, he lived with Caitlin and I for a while. And even at that point, I was probably 24, uh, 25, you know, so he's 18, 19. Like even then, the, the brother and us, we would still start to fight, you know, or wrestle, just boys being boys. And Caitlin had only grown up around girls. That didn't go well for the first few months. We had to learn to tone it down. One time we were out of town and he had some girls come over, I think, and they were baking some cookies and he left our oven on for like two weeks. We came home to the oven still on and Lincoln called Garrett and said, what, why is the oven on? And Garrett was like, oh no. Yes. Yeah, there was the movie around that time, You, Me, and Dupree mm -hmm. with uh, Owen Wilson. And so we nicknamed him Dupree because like what, what disaster can he cause next? In what ways are you guys competitive with each other? You know, not much in football. Um, I think there's just a, a different line there because it's our, our life and our profession, our livelihood. And has it always been that way? Pretty much. I mean, we, we would talk smack back and forth about each other as players, but once we've gotten in the coaching world, never really, it's probably been more supportive. Like anything else, I'm, I'm golf, Who's better looking, who's what, I mean, just anything. Like, so who's better at golf and who's better looking? Well, he knows the truth. <laughs> he knows the truth. <laughs> okay, on a, a, a serious note though, I heard it's kind of conscious decision on your end to uh, not have had him on your, your staff because of the potential change in family dynamic that could create, explain that. Yeah, I, I learned very early on, I don't, as, as much as you can, I don't like mixing family and business. When I started thinking about really being a head coach and some of the difficult decisions at times you have to make, I didn't want having family members to cloud my judgment on doing what was best for my job. And I just, it's a tough line to follow. It, it really is. And so, um, and I think too, I think for him, you know, it, him carving his own path, right? You know, and I, a lot of people I think assumed when he was younger that 
he was getting some of these opportunities just because he had a brother in the business, and he's obviously proven that he's you know way way more than that. Lincoln has really made a point to just encourage and help Garrett, but never do something for him. Everything Garrett has done on his own has been his his own, and Lincoln's just supported him. And certainly, that makes all the success he's having all the more satisfying, but hard conversation to have initially. We had one time where I, I really considered it and it was a little tough to have the conversation. I mean, it, not, not, not like, uh, it wasn't like, it didn't shatter him by any, by yeah. any stretch, but and I think we both have agreed on it. He's confident in himself. He's known that once he got the opportunities, he was gonna be able to do well. They're respectful of each other. They know how hard it is to have success. It's, it's a hard job. Nobody's gonna cheer harder for Garrett than him. But it doesn't matter. Fishing the bigger fish or the first fish or running or throwing or whatever it is, they're gonna compete. So I understand you're kind of more like your mom and uh, that uh, I've been told each of you guys could have been lawyers and that Garrett's more like your dad. For sure. Uh, I was gonna say how fair. 100%, yeah. Uh, my dad and Garrett more, uh, probably more easygoing. Me and my mom are, are the opposite. We're probably a little more type A, plan things out. Drives us crazy when my brother or my dad won't make a decision on something. What do you think you learned from your mom and what do you think you learned from your dad? My mom is fiercely loyal and she's not afraid to do what needs to be done in any situation and I've always respected that about her. Um, my dad is just brutally honest. Um, always has been, uh, treating people the right way, probably the more compassionate side, um, kind of the interpersonal relationships that you have and, and valuing them, um, appreciating what you have. So yeah, probably more of the sentimental side with him. West Texas ladies are tough. I understand you guys were far and away more scared of uh, Mama Riley oh, than yeah. oh, Dad Riley. By a mile. Uh, how so? Well, the 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 whippings or spankings, however you want to, you can't do it anymore, right? But uh, um, that that's the perfect example. So me and my brother, either one of us get in trouble. We're younger, and and we're gonna get we're gonna get a whipping. We try to like con our way anyway into our dad being the one to give it, because <laughs> we we had a, we had a deal literally. If he would give us a whipping, he, he would, we would act like we were like crying and hurting. And the second he walked out of the room, we'd bust out laughing. But we had to hold <laughs> it to make him think. Now my mom, we didn't have to pretend if we were crying. She was, uh, <laughs> yeah, hers had a little different force behind them. We'll put it that way. How did you kind of go over the line in high school? Oh, <laughs> I painted a water tower once. That was probably the, that was one of the dumber things that I did. At the time, did you get destroyed for it? Yes and no. It was like the thing that you did that you're going to pay for it right now. Um, there was the legal side of it. Like, I mean, they took no, us. What happened? We had a rivalry game. So we, we sneak out at like two or three in the morning, drive to this rival town. I mean, scale this water tower, which is, I mean, I don't know, a couple hundred feet high, which was kind of dumb. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we, we cut the fence. We did everything, you, you know. We saw in the movies, right? We thought we were like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible or something. 
Yeah, me and my buddy, we climb up to the top, spray paint the score uh, from the game, climb down. Um, cop pulls us over on the way back. Oh, really? Yeah. And it's like three o'clock in the morning. It's like, what are y'all doing? And we totally lied. Hey, we, we, we knew a kid in town. Hey, we were over visiting him. We're just heading back late. He's like, all right, you guys, you'll be safe going back to, to, to Muleshoe. I, I get home late, sneak back in the house. I hear a doorbell ringing next morning. So I get up, I go, it's, a, it's a, the police officer from our hometown. He's like, were you in, uh, were you in Friona last night? It's like, no. He's like, well, you need to come down to the station with us. And we're still, you know, deny, deny, deny. Well, in walks in the cop from Friona that had pulled us over. And I'm like, all right, we did it. <laughs> Done, you caught us. So the cop from Friona was, was, he was pissed and understandably so. What we found out later was the, the, all the cops had done a big, in town had done a big fundraiser to repaint that the year before. Oh, no. So he's pissed. And he's going through, <laughs> oh, you guys are gonna go, you know, you're going to jail, you're gonna owe you know, this much money. My mom, we actually, our family owned a business that had a water tower. So my mom is, a, is pretty smart and pretty tough. She knew exactly what it cost to repaint that. And she came down like with him right there and said, I know exactly what it cost. If you ever threaten my son again, I mean, she and I was like, yes, it was like it was a pretty cool moment. But yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, what what happened though when you got home? Was she still cool? No, nah, she, she was pissed. Okay. I mean, she she was pissed. It took a while. Um, it took a little while for her to 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 settle over it. Um, people in the town were probably liked it because the rivalry was pretty heated. So it's probably got a little bit of a legendary status to it. What's so funny too is the, so the next year we play them, my mom never said anything to me about winning a game ever in any sport we ever did and still doesn't even now. Only time ever before we played them my senior year, and it was a big deal because all that had happened, it became so public. Um, she told me before the game, she said, you better win this game. <laughs> Yeah. And? Oh, we did. Yeah, we did. We took care of business, so, yeah. She might not have let me in the house. I heard you were kind of a sore loser back in the day. I, st I was and still am. Are you? I still, I, I, I'm not as outward with it now, but yeah, I was, I was way more outward with it. it was, like, what would you do then? I just, I couldn't, it, it like hurt me so bad. Like, I remember when I first started playing basketball, uh, little dribblers, I was a, uh, fifth grader, fourth or fifth grader. I had a chance to like make a layup to win the game and contested, but I missed it. Last shot of the game as time's expired. I mean, I remember being just like destroyed. Very next game, a couple of days later, I hit, a, I hit a shot from just in front of half court at the buzzer to win. And so the opposite, and I remember like after that thinking, like that was so much fun to hit that almost half court shot to win the game. But that, the high of that did not even compare to the low of not, of not getting it done. Like it was, the high was here and the low was just down in the depths. I've tried to push myself to, to enjoy it more, kind of the journey and the ride and, the, and the, when the good things are there. But I, I, you can't change who you are and yeah, the, the losses still, they still sting me. Just don't show it as much now. Not that it's more fun, but he's, he's gotten much better. How did it used to be? He was just very quiet, very, never ugly, just quiet. He didn't, he wanted to process in his head 
all that happened. How will they affect you today? Go through periods. I mean, I think I want to get into the why right away so that I can define it. But I, I typically have got to just separate myself from people like after a loss. I, I just I don't want to be around anybody. I mean, I just need my time to, to get away, to, to blow off steam, to just to, to unwind a little bit and then start the process of figuring out why and how we're going to do better. Just kind of wallow in self-pity. Yeah, yeah, maybe not that, maybe not that, uh, not that horrible. Um, I think a lot of times I, I start I start writing. I'm not a journaler, like I don't journal every day, but a lot of times like when I'm going through something tough, it helps me to kind of put some of my thoughts down and, and maybe define it as opposed to wallowing in self-pity, right? You know, like it, it helps you start to find the track back. And uh, so that's that's always helped me. And how often do you write? Typically only in the bad times. Okay. And what do you do with those writings? Uh, I save them. Uh, I, I kind of use them throughout the week. Um, a lot of times I'll save them and I'll look at them um, like before the season starts, like even the next year. It's kind of a re-motivator for me of what we're trying to do and or remind you of a lesson um, that maybe you learned um, that, that you can apply and not have to go through the same thing again that year. I understand how to give him space and get through that easier. But also your girls, our kids, you know, for him, we lose a game they're still, that's still daddy. They want to win, but they know that's not the definition of who he is. Mm -hmm. And so when you have two little girls that are loving on you and, you know, it makes it a little easier. What role does Caitlin play in your life? Oh, a, a lot. I mean, for me to do the job that, that, that I do, um, it puts a lot on her. And uh, what, Like what? Well, first, I mean, the first most important thing is, is raising our girls. I try to be present as much as I can. I don't, outside of work and being with my family, I don't do much else, but I still get taken away from a lot. And uh, so, I mean, that's certainly, certainly job number one. Do you feel this job allows you to be the type of father you aspire to be? I think in my commitment level, yes, but it still pulls you away from things that you can't get back. And which is hard. Oh, it's the worst part of the job. It's those times when you feel like you're in that position where you got to choose either job or family. And that's like, I got people dependent on me both ways. And in a weird, you know, my, my family depends on me doing my job well, you know, and, but my family also depends on me on being a good father and a good husband. And it's, yeah, no, that's a sacrifice a lot of us make in this business. And we've tried to find ways to, to balance that. And if you don't have a, a spouse that is really in it and, and understands it and fully committed to it, I, I just, I don't know how you would do it well. So what do you remember from how the two of you met in the first place? Just two small town West Texas schools. So you know, I mean, we're within 45 minutes, you know everybody in the town next to you. He was the quarterback and he played basketball. He was a big sports guy in their town on their teams and so I knew who he was, he knew who I was, and we just kind of met and talked. But then it wasn't until you went to college that you start hitting on her through AOL Instant Messenger. <laughs> That's right, that was, that was the uh, older version of sliding into DMs, right? Uh -huh. um, yeah, yeah, we connected on, uh, on uh, Instant Messenger, and, and um, she had a sister that was going to, to school there at the time, and so was in town, so I'm there in Lubbock. And, connected and the rest is history. One of his roommates, I think, started messaging one night and we 
started, he pretended like he was the roommate, maybe it was Lincoln, I'm not sure, one of them. And he asked me to go out on a date and we went to see Sweet Home Alabama and <laughs> to Olive Garden in Lubbock. And that was it. And after dating two years though, you guys break up. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking then? I kind of deep down didn't think the breakup would last very long. Like I, I she just, said the same thing. Yeah, I kind of doubted that it was, uh, it was like one of those things where maybe like you take that break, like, all right, are we really like going forward? Because forward from here gets pretty serious pretty quick. Because she f knew you were the one at that point, I believe. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, we, we, I would say we both felt that way at that time. He said, you know, at this point you're young, but you've dated for a little while. You're either going to move forward or don't waste time. So took a little break. It didn't last long. Explain how it works where you both pick a wedding date and a church before you guys are ever even engaged. Casual conversation that you kind of both know it's heading that direction and how would you do it? And with the business I was in, I mean, you only got certain times of the year. Like you want to, I mean, you can go look now. I mean, coaches, coaches are going to get married and have children in like if there's a hit chart on it right? You're going to see the marriages in late June and July just crazy. Like the people on our staff, I mean, almost everybody's anniversary is in July. It's really? Funny. Oh, yeah. That's all, I mean, it's only time. So when I was talking to your brother uh, Garrett the other day, I'm like, what are some of the uh, toughest things that Lincoln's gone through and how did he get through it? And um, he's like, well, two have happened recently. Mm -hmm. uh, one in OU departure and two in uh, Dave Nickel. Mm -hmm. What impact did Dave have on your life? Yeah, he's the original one that opened the door for me at Texas Tech. Um, and when I first got there as a walk-on quarterback, like he was the young coach that took me off to the side and really taught me everything. And then when I became a young coach, kind of got me started there as well. And uh, so yeah, that, he was he was just as important as any figure in my coaching life. A young 18 year old isn't going to go to the head coach or to somebody else and Dave was kind of his spot so I think that was important to Lincoln when he started that he he's always really invested in young guys and treated them the way Dave treated him. Dave loved Southern California he was single like this was just his like dream to come coach here and kind of back with all of his guys again all of a sudden you get the news that he's sick and it's just like oh just the highest of highs to the like the lowest one of the, like just sickest things I've ever seen. Because you guys are uh, on a plane for the holidays, and I think Dave says something to your wife where you realize he needs to go to a doctor. Kind of take it from there. Dave tells us that you know he hasn't hasn't been feeling great. Um, he had had a few other medical complications in the past, but he, he had like Crohn's. Crohn's, exactly. Right yeah. So he had always dealt with a few things, but he, he just described a few things he was going through that was a little bit, a little odd and unique and thought he needed to see somebody. And we got our team doctor involved who was, who was a, was, was phenomenal with him the whole way through. And then, uh, yeah, we got the news not long after that, that you know, that it was cancer. And I, I think Caitlin was like his emergency mm -hmm. contact. And uh, I guess the doctors couldn't get in touch with Dave for like 10 hours or something of one period. So they call her. Yes. How did you guys find out the severity of it? It was 
progressive, he needs just one break to go his way. Like one thing to come back and say, like, you got it. You know, there, there, here's the path forward to recovery, how we're going to treat it. And it felt like every step was just not the news that you wanted to hear. And uh, was so it, was it just caught too late? Yeah, caught too late and I think complicated by, by Crohn's and some of the things that he had had before. And compounded by COVID. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Somebody close to you passing away is never easy, especially never easy when they're young and have a lot of life left to live. And then I think you add on that, you know, I mean, he lived here with us. I mean, the last several months of his life. He didn't need to be by himself that we could move him into our house and help set up, facilitate care for him. Why was it important to you guys to do that? It's what you would do for anybody that you loved. I mean, it was an honor to spend his last days with him and to love on him and show him, you know, he was so good to us for so long and we loved him. How did you guys handle it when he was here? Just kind of like he was another member of the family. I am thankful that he was, if he was going to go through it, he was here with us because there was a lot of time that we had together that, that we wouldn't have had. You know, the whole time you're like, like he's, he's one of the best dudes, and you're like, why would this happen to him? You know, and I, I, I still haven't come to terms with that. I'm like, you know, why not me? You know, and I still, for a dude like him, I don't know. You just some of the things in life there's not an explanation for. I know there's a really special night though um, before you flew him home, mm -hmm. uh, where everybody came together here. Uh, tell about that evening. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. It was, uh, we'd all been at the office. We invited a lot of people over, uh, his family, uh, his brother was in town and his wife. Um, so they were here. A lot of the coaches that, that knew Dave, that had worked with them, everybody came over. And it was like one of those days, like it just energized Dave. He, you know, he wasn't eating very much at that point. And I mean, he ate like a Viking. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was awesome. Like he was just eating and everybody was having a good time. It was like we kind of all forgot about it for, for several hours that night. We're laughing, joking, telling old stories. He was a master impersonator, like one of the funniest human beings. So he was, you know, he was just running the whole room. And we, we took a great picture. Uh, out back, and Caitlin has since put that in all the, the guys' offices that were a part of it. Uh, and I know Caitlin was stressing about the, the day the flight was, you know, mm -hmm. back home, but mm -hmm. that obviously timing worked out perfectly. Why was it so important to you guys to make that happen? Yeah, that was, that was huge. I, we, I knew he wanted to get back home. He wanted to see his dad. Um, and certainly his dad wanted to see him. And we had a sense that there was a real sense of urgency behind this. And uh, thank goodness we did, you know, if we if wouldn't have done it or done it any later, we wouldn't have made it because he ended up passing away the next morning. Uh, Caitlin says that that period of your guy's life was the hardest you guys have ever had. Going through that with Dave gave you guys more purpose amid the OU exit and I'm curious your thoughts on that going through the deal with OU which I get it was our decision right we caused it I like I understand that um, was very very difficult like very well for sure one of the toughest things we've been through but then you put that up next to going through that with somebody who's fighting for their life 
in some ways it compounded the tough things you're going through, but I think took our mind off of it. And, and yeah, it's like, you know, we're, we're okay, right? There's, there's, there's levels to, to what people are going through. And some time passed over a year now. I don't know that I've completely processed it yet. It's still, still at times doesn't seem real. Life is short and love on the ones you love and take care of the people you can. And just, I mean, it was an honor. It was time that we are thankful that we got to have with him. The nastiness of the OU exit. Caitlin got emotional on the phone talking about how the hardest part for her was just watching people assassinate your character. Mm -hmm. um, what was most difficult for you to take? I, I live in that world a little bit more. Um, certainly there were some extremes there. Um, that's, I always feel like the truth will come to light. Um, and I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes, but I, I know who I am too. And that, that, of all the stuff that happened, that got to me the least. You just, you kind of grow thick skin. Some of it's the, the way the game has changed. The timelines now with recruiting, early signing period, transfer portal, it, you take the same situation 10 years earlier. Number one, you don't have to do it the day after the last game of the season because there's time. There's not a sense of urgency on, oh, well, there's a signing class or there's this transfer portal. And then as far as with the players and players that come with you, it's a difficult decision. I mean, it's like you put yourself in the position of, do I want players to leave the place that I was at? Absolutely not. And one of the things I told the players when I stood up there is I think every one of you should stay here and do it. And, and we actually, behind the scenes, people probably wouldn't believe it now, we helped keep a lot of players there that are still there. Um, but if you have a player that you recruited, knew their family, you've been in there with, and he says, Coach, I want to go with you, do you say no? Do you like say, oh, you were good enough to come with me to, to this place, but now I, I, I won't take you here? Like, it's, it, it's not easy. And on top of it, I, I think the weight of, all the people that that decision affected, right? The, 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 players, uh, the players at OU, the players at USC, all of the staff members, whether they're the ones that came out here with us or, or went to a different spot or stayed at OU, their families, their kids. Like, I mean, you, you're, you're feeling just the weight of all that. Cause that is a, unless you've been in that position, like I, I can't even really describe what that feels like. And uh, the move was, in this day and age, a little bit unprecedented. So I, I didn't have like a great roadmap to go off of in terms of how do you do this? I felt some of the backlash and I said some things through it that added to it. I, I responded, I, I shot back a few times and I, I shouldn't have. And but, but not as severe as one would think based on some of what was coming your guys way. Yeah, but I'm, but you know, I'm the coach, you know, it's my job. I'm, I'm not a fan. And, uh, you know, I, I've got a, I could have done better. They're like, there's no question about it. How so? Uh, just by, I think, just staying away from some of the things that I said or some of the topics that I got into because I was emotional and angry about some of the things that were happening. And not, as, not even as much the things they were saying about me, but just some of the things that happened to the staff that we had there and their families, I let it get to me. There were better ways to handle it than me firing back something in the media or in an interview. That, and that, 
that added to it. But I, I told my wife and the couple of people I confided in the night we made the decision, I, I told them it's going to be bad. And a couple of people were like, well, it's, it'll be you know, a few hours, a few days, it'll blow by. And I said, no, y'all don't. I've lived in this, these shoes. Like, it's going to be... It's gonna be bad, bad. When do you actually like make the decision? Uh, nine, ten in the morning, that day. Um, but we were sitting there. I, was, I mean, but this that, is after this is after the season. Yeah, after the last game. And we got home and had the talk with USC and um, had a long talk about it all through the night. Didn't sleep any. It's crazy how that works, though, too, because presumably. You know, it's not as if your agent talks to them the first time the day after. So there are conversations mm -hmm. that are taking place, but how little time then there actually is to decide. Why does it work that way? Yeah, I mean, I had eight hours. And you understand it from the school's perspective. You know, in this case, their job had been open for months. Would I have wanted to have longer? Yeah, absolutely. I'm thankful I got to tell the team. I'm thankful I got to tell... Uh, uh, our AD, um, but there's more people I would have liked to have talked to in person and have more time and, and have more time to think about it. I don't, it wouldn't have changed my decision, um, but it would have, you know, it would have probably helped the exit. A couple things that I just wanted to ask you about just based on the conversation with Caitlin. She told me that you guys had to have armed security mm -hmm. because somebody broke into your house. Yeah. Uh, what happened there? Yeah, I had multiple. Um, I had a lot of different people trying to break into the house the days after it happened. And 95% of the fans and people out there at Oklahoma or anybody else are great. But yeah. you, you typically always have that that percentage that, that at times take it too far. Obviously, this was one of those instances. I heard you got packages and then they got your nine-year-old's number. Um, like, what was the scariest part for you? Yeah, it was my family's safety. I didn't care about the house. I didn't care about anything else, just their safety. And we thought we were gonna, because we wanted the girls to be able to finish out school um, just because the semester was almost over. And as that stuff transpired, we said, no, we gotta get them the hell out of here as fast as we can. You also though had people who would, who you respected, who would say one thing to you privately, who would then go out publicly and say something completely different. I guess on the emotional side of it, past you know my family, the toughest thing for me was the relationships that you had built that you thought maybe at some point went past you just being the football coach there and you realize did not go past that. So, but that's part of what we do. Nobody's shedding a tear for us. We get to experience some things a lot of people don't and that's some of the, that's a little bit of the price we pay. Explain kind of the regaining of the anonymity that you had lost. It's been one of the just best parts of this job, um, especially having young children. I was extremely conscious, and at times probably overconscious uh, of my my first run as a head coach, um, of kind of always being in that public eye. I got to where I wouldn't go out to eat. The other day, he was coming home from the office, and he said, do you want to go to Trader Joe's? And I said, okay, let's go. Just wanted to get out and go to the grocery store. And but that he like loves it. It floored me that that was just something that he wanted to do. That was nothing that we would do before. He he loves what he does absolutely to his core. But you know, there's a part that just wants to go get gas and go to the grocery store. I love coaching. I love all things I get to do. I don't like I don't like the the 
not your celebrity, but that 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 part of it, right? The, the I've always been a little uncomfortable with that part of it, and that was a huge selling point for me here. Was you know we're not the only show in town, and there, there's a great article um, that somebody sent me right before I took this, and I remember reading it when it came out. They interviewed um, the head coaches at major schools at the time, and it was like, what do you do? when you have time to get away. They get to Pete Carroll, that's when Pete was here. And Pete said, well, I don't, I don't have to go anywhere. I can go out to eat that night and nobody even cares if I'm in there because they're looking over at George Clooney and that person from Friends. He said, when you coach in the small college town at a major deal, you are George Clooney or the person from Friends. The advantages here for a coach, especially a coach that has young children, fit us. And it's, yeah, I think I'm, I'm more relaxed. I think life outside of the, the, the office has is, is been much more normal here. And, and because of that, I think more normal for, for our children, which is most important. Because it gives the children more of an opportunity to kind of flourish outside of being Lincoln Riley's kids. Yeah, we had, I remember we would go like on vacation, go to a restaurant, and, and I'd be looking at them like, did they not even know how to behave in a restaurant? Caitlin would look at me like, we don't ever go to restaurants. Like, how do you want them to know? And, and it kind of hit me. It's like, all right, yeah, now I'm, I'm, I'm holding back, and that's like stunning them in some way, and that's, that's obviously not a good thing. How have you seen it impact the kids? I, I think they see me more relaxed. Um, I think they're very happy. I, I think they're, they don't feel like they have to live different than their friends. And that's, that's everything to me. So shortly after you get to USC, you have a good parking spot. It's a street over from your office. Mm -hmm. Take me through the detailed explanation you gave in advocating for a better one. <laughs> uh, it's about a five-minute walk. Um, I park, and it's a good parking spot, you know, urban rough campus, life. all that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I walk through the most beautiful campus in the country to my office. So Clark, uh, uh, our DFO, I'm talking to him one day, and we're going through some things, and I said, hey, can you talk to them about my parking spot? He's like, what do you mean? you got a great spot. And I said, well, you know, it's, it's a five-minute walk. You know, and he's looking at me like, are you kidding me? And I said, I know what you're thinking, but understand, that's, so I'm walking back and forth each day. That's 10 minutes a day. All right, that's over an hour a week. All right, that's over 50 hours, all right, a year that I'm simply just walking back and forth to my car. Not to mention if you go back multiple times in a day for whatever, I'm either wasting that time where I could be with my family or I could be doing something to help us win. And he's like, all right, well, when you put it that way, it makes some sense. So now, uh, <laughs> now my walk's like... 15 seconds, so <laughs> we, uh, we improve, the, uh, improve the math. He will get up insanely early, take value of every time just so that he could be home to put the girls to bed. You know, he, if it means less sleep for him, he doesn't care. He's gonna make sure that time is not wasted. Are there other examples of how that time allocation comes out in you or like similar scenarios where you've done the same thing? We invested pretty quickly in a in during the season in a uh, in having a driver um, to to get me back and forth to campus. Because and, I was going to say my argument was off camera. Well, you live a half hour yeah. plus from campus. Exactly. Yeah. When I started looking at the investment there, 
you start talking, now you're talking over an hour a day, every single day that you come home. And that adds up. And so, yeah, for me, literally, I walk out of the office and for 15 seconds, I'm not working. I get in my car, I work till the second I pull up into the driveway and then same thing back. And it's, yeah, it's made the, it's made any drive kind of, kind of non-existent. It's, it's all productive until I get home. And you said the helicopter landing pad on the tennis courts under That's phase two, current. phase two, yeah. What's this I hear about the, the memory and math skills from your grandma? She was way smarter than me, like unbelievably gifted. Like even in her later age, she could remember every person in the family and their kids and their kids' kids and who, the, I mean, she just, it was amazing. She was like a, like an encyclopedia and then what she could remember and then yeah, her math skills. She, she could always do math without writing anything down, always. In the photographic memory with regards to football, your brother says it's a thing with you and I know it came to light in your old local radio show in Oklahoma uh, where they'd have you recall plays, but uh, do you believe that to be true? Uh, to a point, I, I, I remember a lot more than I, than I don't. He might not know the code to get into the house or the garage or anything like that. It's not that kind of memory, but, but his photographic memory, especially around football, is insane. What don't you remember when it comes to football? Not much. I mean, not not anything? much. I, I don't say anything. I like. Can I? Could I right here go and like recite every single play that I've called in every single game? No. But if if you ask me just a question, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to get it right. The way he sees something and the way I see something are like two different languages. I watch the game. We win. Yay! Hooray! We get ready for the next one. And he is still just processing and thinking about that play four games ago or what it did. It's just, his brain's incredible. Like the second you say a game, like I can already start to go back and remember like the first play of the game and like what happened and like when we scored and like I can, through all the games and all the years, I've always, I've always been able to do it. And how far back does that go? Probably as long as I've been coaching. I don't remember the ones as a player uh, as much as I do the ones from when I've coached. I'll give you something from probably every game I've coached. Uh, your second game at East Carolina as offensive coordinator. That was uh, Memphis. Yeah, Memphis. And what happened? We had a pretty good game. We tempoed them the entire game. Um, had some big plays. We had a big quick screen to Dwayne Harris early in the game that popped. Davis finds Harris again. He's breaking through the middle. He's at midfield. But yeah, I remember that was kind of when tempo was just first getting going and we just tempoed him up and down the field. Yeah, I mean, I can right now remember several plays from it. Do you remember what the score was? No, I don't remember the scores as often. I could tell you if it was close, if we won by a lot, if it was high scoring, low scoring. I don't get that wrapped up into like all the stats and all of it. It's more like, it's more like the art, right? Like more like just the plays and kind of how they happened and the game situations. How would you assess the current state of college football? <laughs> it's still great. It is a great sport. I think it's getting so many people right now are too caught up on all the changes that are happening like it's still a tremendous sport it's in transition right now and um, you take some things that in their own right in a 10-year period or a 50-year period would be landmark changes and we've all these have happened in the matter of a couple of years and you put them all together and it's been very unpredictable i feel like the next five to ten years it's going to continue to really evolve heavily and and you feel like there'll be some stability after that but i don't 
I don't feel like we're very close to stability in some of the areas that have changed so much, like like the transfers and like NIL, and like conference realignment and just all that's going on right now. Where does your gut tell you the, the transitions in the game um, will eventually net out? Well, I think as, as we start to get some some real data on what's working and what's not, because that's, that's what will happen. Right now there's no data, so everybody's just going off in all these different directions on what they think's right. When we start to see, you know, what is the real success rate of these transfers? You know, are these transfers graduating? Um, you know, I, I think, I feel like that'll level off. Um, How so? Well, I think, I think right now it's just the, the, the cool, easy idea to do. Um, but you also see the thousands of guys in the portal right now that don't have a home, that left a home and a scholarship that they had. You see a lot of guys that are going places and not graduating. Um, and for every good story right now, there's probably two or three that, that are not successful. What do you think of the transfer portal? It's good and bad, right? There are absolutely situations where it has benefited guys. And listen, we've been... Had enough, we've had a lot of the guys that have been as, have benefited from it as much as anybody. There's too many people that that's the answer when something doesn't go right. And I think that is a problem. Because you as coach also need to be able to give tough love to a player and appropriately punish them or whatever the situation might call for without the player upping and leaving because that doesn't really at the end of the day help anybody yeah if you sit with any recruit before they when they're coming out and you say do you want me to coach you to the best of my ability and push you to get everything out of you every kid and every parent's going to say absolutely yes of course if I can't do that or if I do that I know that you might leave and I'm and that keeps me from doing that then that helps nobody at the end of the day it comes back and puts uh it still comes back and puts responsibility on us of who you're bringing into the program and are you bringing in guys that are going to run at the first sight of adversity or guys that are going to hang in there and only make a move if it's if the situation is just flat out not working how do you view nil some the same way um i think there's some real positives to it it's never made sense to me why these guys could not earn money i mean every other human on the planet can can earn money every other college student can earn money and everybody else connected with them in the Absolutely. football. Absolutely. Schools have made money. Conferences right. have made money. TVs have made money. Coaches have made money. So why can these guys, you know, not get compensated? Now, the age-old question was, well, of course, it's going gonna, it's gonna to seep into recruiting. Like, I mean, it's everybody is such competitors. You almost got to protect us from ourselves. I think everybody knows that it's, it's gone too far fully knowing that when they opened it up, especially when the NCAA did it with no guidelines, which, you know, in my opinion, was a, was a, a pretty big mistake, you were going to have to try to walk some of it back to get it to where it's what it's intended, which then benefit off their name, image, and likeness. Um, what do you think needs to happen? I wish I had a great answer. Um, you, you've got to try to find a way to take it out of recruiting. Uh, but that's going to be really, really difficult um, in this age of, uh, you know, where people are going to lawyer up or you're going to get, there's antitrust rules and all the things going on legally. 
it's going to be a long road to walk that back to maybe get it to the ideal spot. And do you ever get it back to there? I, I hope so, but I don't know. Which, in fairness, only benefits you being in L.A., but says a lot that you're saying that for the betterment of the game. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think just the purists and, and all of us that, that love the game, um, we, we want it to end up in the right place. And, and you balance that between all of us, are, I think, feeling that constant push and pull of you feel your responsibility there, but also your responsibility to make your current situation, your current team and program the best you can. I mean, that's what they hire you for. If you were running college football, the immediate changes you would make would be what? Yeah, one one CEO or commissioner. Uh, I, I think you I think you basically go to an NFL model. Uh, the NFL has wildly succeeded. Um, we've certainly crossed over into that world. You re-outline all of these conferences, um, which is wild to say for a head coach of a team that's getting ready to go to another conference next year. But I think you re-outline that. Uh, you have one head, you have a salary cap, and then they can go earn outside of that however they want to, just like an NFL player can. I, I don't know how long, I don't know how fast, but I feel like some form or fashion of that is, is, is coming. Your early coaching days, take me into whatever you remember from that conversation with Coach Leach, where he's trying to essentially get you to retire as a player to join his staff that you were playing for. Yeah, I was kind of blown away that I, just, I didn't know him that well yet. I'd only been playing for him for that year. Um, kind of insulted, right? I, leaving it, not during it, I wasn't. During it, I was just like, man, the head coach is like bringing this walk-on quarterback in and spending, I mean, he spent like two hours with me and he's taking me through. I mean, he's selling me now like I'm a dang recruit. I mean, I was kind of just shocked. And then I left it, and I did. I got a little insulted, kind of angry about it because a competitor in you wants to still play. And uh, so I did what I do in tough times. I, I got away, uh, drove down to, to our family's lake, came back kind of with a, with a, changed, uh, a changed approach to it. Did you ever think about how things would be different had you not mm -hmm. made that? Sure. Yeah, no, I do. Um, you know, the injury probably helped me come to terms with it that, that I had in high school on my throwing shoulder. If not for that, I probably would have said, no, nah, I'm going to keep playing or I'm going to transfer and go do something else. Because you couldn't throw right not like I Not like I could. I'm not saying I would have like been an NFL quarterback had I not got hurt. Surgeries weren't quite as efficient as they are today. There was that realization in the back of my mind, like I knew that it, I didn't have what I had before. And I think that probably helped me make the decision to, to jump into coaching. When you took that job, I, I read somewhere that you never went to another frat party mm -mm. and you cut out almost all your friends except Caitlin. Yeah, because I mean, by that point, I had a lot of great friends on the team. I mean, I was with those guys all the time. Those were my friends. I had a couple of friends outside of it, um, but not many. And yeah, it's like when I did it, I was like, when I do something, I, I, I go, and I did. I never, I never hung out with those guys again. Why not? Well, because I just felt I was on the other side of it, you know, and here I'm going to be in there with these guys here and their futures discussed or this or that, and I never wanted to put myself in a position where I compromised that. It's like some of the hard things you do now. It's, it's part of the job, and it's necessary, and if it's what we got to do, it's what we got to do. Garrett says you learned just about everything from Coach Leach. Uh, what did he teach you? A lot, yeah. I mean, way, way past football. I, 
that, you know, he really helped the responsibility he gave me early on really helped me get ready to become a head coach. I didn't even think about the time, but like every schedule that we did, every bowl schedule, every practice schedule, like, I mean, I remember we, when we would play a bowl game, we would get the bowl assignment, you know, that, that Monday after, Sunday or Monday after the last game, and he and I would be in there till like three or four in the morning putting together the bowl schedule. <laughs> and I'm like, at the time, I was like, well, I'm just helping, doing whatever. But then all of a sudden, fast forward a few years later, and I'm in charge of all that, and like it was, I say easy, but it was like, I've been doing this forever. And that's, I think, a lot of the things that head coaches can struggle with in the beginning is they've coached a position or a unit or they've called plays, but they've never had to do all of that. Well, Mike hated doing all that stuff. So he gave it to people and let them and let them do it. And so, yeah, just. But you probably didn't recognize when you're in it how rare no clue. that opportunity no was. No clue. I was just like so focused on just trying to help the team and prove my worth there that yeah I had zero perspective brutal hours though right brutal brutal because my he's, he's a night owl he was a complete night owl so I learned pretty quickly do my classes in the morning and then he'd get to the office between you know one and three o'clock in the afternoon and then stay all night and get up and do it again the next day and nothing about Mike was typical I mean my first position meeting with Mike as a quarterback he he put in a a, a dip of Copenhagen and proceeded for the next hour and a half to talk about all the different types of dip, the different cuts, how they affect you, all this and that. And which, which he's since called bullshit on. But well, it's completely yeah. true. Okay, yeah. I, I, have, uh, I have four other QBs in there that will happily verify, but uh, <laughs> you just never know where those could go. So you had to have, and Mike was smart this way, he had people behind the scenes that were going to supplement. Tell about your Valentine's Day dinner with Mike Leach. It was kind of a... Fork in the road. I've been a assistant um, uh, off the field or you know unpaid for a long time. This was like the job. The job was open, and that was like if I'm going to get hired and be a full-time coach here, this is the one. And if not, like I got to go restart somewhere else. It was pivotal, and you know Mike never did anything fast, and so we're you know just hanging on for like I felt like months. Really? really to make this decision. I mean, every night, I mean, I can hardly even go to sleep. You know, I'm just like, is this going to happen? Is it not? And hey, one night he grabbed me before uh, we had a late night team workout there that we would occasionally do. And we were up there and he said, hey, let's go grab some dinner. And, and, he, and he told me it was hiring me. And I mean, I, it was kind of like, yeah, it still, it still gives me chills to this, to this day. What about it uh, still affects you? Well, just, I mean, had he chose the other way, like, who knows? I mean, I, I didn't have like many ends into this business. I wasn't a big time college player. You know, you start thinking about like, all right, if this doesn't work, like, what are you gonna do next? I mean, I was 23 years old at the time and the, the way things were going at Texas Tech, I mean, the receiver coach at Texas Tech because of how much we were throwing the football was a fairly prominent position. I mean, he could have gotten a lot of way more qualified people than me. And uh, so I certainly didn't feel like a shoe in by any stretch. And so, yeah, I just, it's one of those moments you feel like my life and my family's life has an opportunity to be a little bit different based on what had just happened. And what was his role in you getting that first OU job? He had a role, he definitely did. Bob was, um, you know, looking for a new OC and, and you know, Mike had, had taken the Texas Tech job from Oklahoma and so they had a great relationship. And uh, 
it was really I think two people really helped. You know, uh, Mike really helped a lot. Um, you know, calling Coach Stoops, telling him, um, you know, what he thought about me, and then, and then actually, funny, I actually had interviewed with Kentucky um, prior to that, where Mark Stoops was the head coach. And as we went through, Mark and I agreed it just wasn't the right fit, exactly what he was looking for. But when when Bob had the job opened up, Mark called Bob and, and told him that he thought, knew what Bob was looking for and thought that I would be somebody that, you know, he ought to take a look at. USC Today. First, obviously, some news recently. How, how did you find out the AD was out? Uh, I got some calls from from upper administration uh, that morning before before it happened, and just to give me a heads up. And, and um, listen, I, I've you know been through enough things now. Not much phases me. You know, it's 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 certainly unfortunate situation because um, I, I am appreciative because you know Mike was instrumental in, in bringing us here. Um, but I also know what's building here, both in football and and beyond. And we're going to get a great leader in here and pair up and go to work. I read one of the reasons for OU's success was the stability between president and AD. Um, how important do you think that is for a program in terms of having success long term? It's it's really important. You know that that was I think especially in Bob's tenure uh, that was really important. I mean he had the same same two people there for 18 years. I had three presidents in, in five years at OU. Not to say any of them were bad or, or anything like that. It's just stability is important as long as you have the right people there. If you are not aligned, like you have no shot. It don't matter how big your stadium is. It don't matter how nice your facilities are. Like you got no shot, in my opinion, not at this highest level. What do you think about all the talent at USC just in athletics across like all the different sports. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about some of the people that are there or will be there soon. I'm excited because I, a lot of us, the head coaches, we, we talk and have got a great relationship. And I think we all see how what's happening in this sport affects that sport um, and just the overall culture and kind of vibe. Um, it feels to me kind of like it did years back. You know, it kind of, I, I first kind of got enamored with SC you know, during Pete's career here and what they were doing. And I just remember watching, thinking there's nowhere else like that. Like you can turn on the, you can turn on the TV, watch a great program in the South or a great program in the East or anywhere else. And that's yeah, fun to watch, but man, like that scene was just different. Like you could just tell it was just a, it was the, you know, kind of the unicorn of the sport. And uh, there's signs of it being like that again. For you, the impact that has is what? It allows you to, to offer up to your players, your coaches, the families, a, a different experience. I mean, let's face it. I mean, part of what we do is, is sales, right? Like you're, you're, you're selling people on what their experience can be like and how it can change their lives ultimately. And when you're selling a product, I don't care what sales you're in, when you're selling a product that's different than other products, you have a huge advantage. The thing that's interesting is the advantages here are advantages that money can't buy. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're advantages that other places, no matter the resources and all the great things they have, they can't duplicate. And that's what's so unique about this place.
What do you think's the dynamic between you and Caleb that is responsible for the shared success? Probably equally competitive, committed to, to the game, not afraid. I think we've got a good enough relationship now that we're, we're able to be brutally honest with each other. And that means what? Well, occasionally, you know, as a coach, you're worried about a player's confidence or how's he going to take this or that or uh, a player sometimes you're worried about telling a coach how you really feel because you're worried, well, maybe he'll think less of me or I just don't feel like I can have that conversation or be honest. And neither one of them are good in terms of getting the player where you need to get them. And there's very little that we don't talk about. Uh, we can be completely upfront and honest with each other. We want to push each other to be better. When we get in there, he's not the guy that, you know, is a Heisman Trophy winner. He's the, the quarterback that needs to get better, and I'm the coach that needs to coach him better. And that's just kind of always been our mentality. And then I think we're not afraid to take chances and go for, go for, uh, and, and, and go for everything, right? And, and coming out here, uh, feeling like we, you know, and when we rejoined of like what we know we can accomplish together, um, I think we share that and not, not scared about that. We're excited and we want to lead we want to lead this this program there. Heisman? Who knows, man? Who knows? It's not the team awards and those are the most important thing to me, but it's I also know that it's a really, really special, you know, group to be a part of and, and uh, to have had to see like three different guys, three different families, three different teams, like like to see that happen because it is so rare. It's it's just it's been fun to be along for the ride. I was reading a story when it was Baker Mayfield that you were coaching, going back to when he was a walk-on and you had to tell him he wasn't the right guy to be starter. How do you handle those conversations? Probably like the walk-on I was. I didn't get all the, the fluffy stories and the recruiting pitches and all that, right? It's, it's that probably some of that comes back to my dad's honesty and my mom's willingness to do whatever it took and not being afraid to have the tough conversations. Same with regards to punishment? Mm -hmm. Because I know you had to punish, you know, Baker yep. once. Yep. Um, how, do, how do you figure out what's appropriate in those situations and then how to articulate it? Yeah, I think you got to take what the public and everybody else thinks out of it and just do what you know is right. Um, and, and what you know is fair and not worry about, especially in terms of punishment, not worrying about the game, not worry about anything competitive, just do what's right in that instance and, uh, and be able to compartmentalize the rest of it. And yeah, having the conversations, I'm, tough conversations, like tension-filled conversations, they don't, they don't bother me. Clark would actually say that I enjoy them. Um, it does do not, you? Probably in some sick way, yeah. <laughs> okay, why, okay, explain that. I just... I don't know. I enjoy uncomfortable conversations. I just do. Because I, I think most of the time, uncomfortable conversations are where shit's getting done. And it probably goes back to my efficiency. You can have the nice, comfortable conversations where everybody just bebopping along and nothing gets done. I just, let's, 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 have, let's have a result off of this. Have there been times, though, when you knew you needed to say something in a certain situation and you let how uncomfortable it was get the best of you so you didn't end up conveying what needed to yeah. get conveyed? Yeah, I, I did. I would say my, my earlier years as a head coach at OU, I did too much. You know, you're new, you're, 
you're kind of figuring this out on the fly. You don't, you know, you, you don't want to overstep your bounds. You, you can make the mistake, too, of not being aggressive enough and not being direct enough. And I, I've, I've definitely become more direct the more I've, I've been in this role. And um, again, just my mindset is what's, what's the best thing for the program? And whatever it takes to do that, I'm willing to do it. I have heard that you will retire young. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts? Yeah, I'm on the clock. <laughs> um, that is, I don't know how I'll feel, you know, in, in, in a few years when I became a head coach so young. I mean, you become a head coach at 33. My mindset was always like, if I can make it to 50. Um, because there is other things I want to do. I don't even know exactly what they are. I don't know that I have the list right now, but I, I just know there's other things I want to do and experience. And I may have a different tune when I get to 49, um, but I, I, don't, I don't care a lot about like legacy. I don't care in terms of like how many games you won or I've never cared about that. Whenever I'm, you know, on my deathbed, I don't think I'm going to give a damn about how many games I won, you know, or, or if, if I have a statue. My gut is that he, that will retire early, for sure. And why? Just because to him, I don't think that there's a tangible goal of, I need to win this many championships or accomplish this much to be successful, and I can't retire until that point. Um, our time is valuable to him and so he wants to travel and do things with the girls when they're growing up for things that you know he feels like he's maybe lost out on there's a funny story um my sunday school teacher told um and i was in sixth grade so i just started organized football for the first time he's like well what do you are you loving football it's like yeah it's like the greatest thing ever you know i'm talking she goes well what do you think about you know, like the band being there and the cheerleaders and all the fans and like all that and fairly politically incorrect what I'm about to say, I realize that, but I was at sixth grade and I said, you know what, I really don't care about any of all that. Like, I just, I love the game. I love to compete. And if they're there, that's great. And if they're not, that's okay. Like, that's not why I love it. I've been able to, to do a lot of really cool things and hopefully a lot more to come with this job and this game but also know it's taken me away from a lot of things that I don't want to be there at the end and I didn't make up for it. And so I, I, maybe in the next phase of my life, maybe that's what I'll get a chance to do. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, this was fun. Absolutely. You got it. Coaches, that was so enlightening. Hope you found it beneficial to you. So let me share with you three takeaways from this interview just to think about. So here's the first one. How do you personally handle losses? Here's how Lincoln Riley does it. He gets away from everyone for 24 to 48 hours, focuses on understanding the why behind the loss. He admits he's a sore loser. He's gotten better at it over the years, but he's the ultimate competitor, a competitor at everything. So he has grown to have actually a methodology for getting over losses by creating alone time for 24 to 48 hours. And here's the second takeaway, the transition from Oklahoma to USC. What a nightmare. When he made the decision to move to USC from Oklahoma, he created a firestorm. While 95% of the fans were, were fine, 
there were 5% of the fans that were just out of control, threatened the security of his family. He had people break into his house. It got so bad, he had to pull his kids out of school and move to L.A. as soon as possible. Wow. So the takeaway is we've got some pretty unenlightened, unhinged people running around in this world today. And you have to make it a point to focus intentionally on the good in the world. And there's a lot of good in the world today. Just have to look for it. And here's the third takeaway. The transfer portal and tough conversations. Lincoln actually likes having tough conversations. And today he doesn't shy away from like he did maybe to some degree in the past. He's direct and tough conversations get results. And he just wants what's best for the program. The way the transfer portal works today, boy, as you well know, it makes it hard to have tough conversations. Athletes want to pick up their toys and go elsewhere, right? In evaluating the transfer portal, it's just hard to say if it's working or not. There's just not enough data, according to Lincoln, to see if the players entering the portal are finding a home and actually graduating after they enter the portal. So here's the action step from listening to Lincoln. How do you handle losses? Is it as good as you'd like? In working myself with athletes and coaches from a mindset standpoint, I see that addressing this is really important. As we learned in our Learning from Experts program a few months ago, Bill Walsh, the legendary Super Bowl coach, retired from coaching because he couldn't handle the losses. It's all a state of mind and how you look at them. Do you have a defined system for getting over losses like Lincoln Riley does? Being alone for 24, 48 hours to figure out why the loss happened? Think about that. You might spend some time contemplating if there's a better way for you to handle losses. It may make you a better coach as well as a happier human being. And let me share a final thought from Tony Robbins. And the simplicity of this is really powerful. Life is controlled by what you focus on and the meaning you give to things that happen. Now, let me say that again. Life is controlled by what you focus on and the meaning you give to things that happen. So how's your overall day in and day out mindset? Is it where you want it to be? If not, hey, it's simple. Adjust what you're focusing on or adjust the meaning you're giving to things. So now let's roll to listening to a short presentation by Darren Hardy. He talks about the Pygmalion effect. You'll learn what that is and listen for how it is scientifically proven to impact your athlete's performance. Good morning. So yesterday I talked to you about the Pygmalion effect, how our expectations lead to our creations. This morning I want to talk to you about this powerful creative force, how it can not only change the results and outcomes of our lives, but how your expectation can change the results and outcomes of other people's lives, particularly the ones that you lead, teach, or parent. You see, expectation not only drives our creative capabilities, but it also drives the creative capabilities of those whom look up to us. We can literally change the creative performance of those that we lead through expectation. 
You've probably heard the famous study uh, that Dr. Rosenthal conducted in 1968 on teachers who at an elementary school in California, they told the teachers that a certain, certain pupils in their classrooms had been identified as quote unquote intellectual bloomers, children who would show an intellectual growth spurt during the school year. In other words, they set their expectation on these particular group of kids. In actuality, the students were randomly given the designation of intellectual bloomers. But guess what? At the end of the term, it was precisely those students who delivered higher academic achievement. Why? How is this possible? Seems like a magic trick, right? Well, the reason, while as magical and mystical as the results might seem, the reason is quite simple. It was because the teachers believed those particular students had greater capability. Later studies showed that the teachers unconsciously gave them more positive attention, more positive feedback, and learning opportunities to these particular students that they didn't give the others. In short, the teachers were able to non-verbally communicate their positive expectations for academic success to those students, and those students rose to meet their expectations. This phenomenon, also known as the self-fulfilling prophecy, has been documented in every area of human performance, in families, in homes and courtrooms, military training centers, businesses, anywhere where inspired leadership exists. Study after study has proven when managers have high hopes for certain employees, those workers become more productive. When military instructors are told specific trainees have superior skills, those trainees perform better. I read a report about a life insurance company that through an expansion had to split up their offices. The agents were separately evenly divided into six separate offices according to, the, to their past performance. A manager of one of those offices did something super sneaky. He told the agents assigned to his office that headquarters was conducting a study. They had analyzed the IQ and personality profile and performance capability and wanted to discern whether putting their most, most valuable and potential agents together, that, that those would have the greatest capacity to collaborate and work together how much more they could produce as a team than individually. They estimated it would be 25 to 30% greater than the other five offices. By now, you can probably guess what happened, right? This particular office started to call themselves the super staff. Even the other offices started referring to the nickname that they gave themselves. By the end of the year, they exceeded even the wild expectation the manager gave them, and they produced 40% more than all the other offices. And it remained at that figure. What is also interesting is one of the other managers uh, of the other uh, five managers, he thought he got a raw deal. Even though the agents were distributed completely equally, he thought he was assigned the worst agents and often set it within earshot of his agents. Well, guess what? Yes, even that was a self-fulfilling prophecy. It works both ways here. Each of the agents' individual productivity actually declined from the previous year and attrition amongst them increased significantly. That, my friends, is the power of expectation. You see, as humans, we don't lack capacity. We don't lack potential. In fact, we are all far more capable than we live up to. We, what we can achieve is significantly greater than our current results indicate. People don't lack potential. They don't lack capabilities. They lack a leader, someone who believes in them, someone who expects them to be great and do great things. Unfortunately, People often don't believe in themselves. They don't see their true potential. It takes someone outside of them to see it and to show them, to believe in them. A leader can lend them their belief and expectation to then live up to. 
One of my favorite leadership quotes comes from my friend Brian Tracy, who said, leadership is the ability to get extraordinary achievement from ordinary people. You see, we are all extraordinary. The tragedy we believe is that we are only ordinary. It takes a leader to show us our potential and the high expectation that of what they believe that we then will meet. That is what lifts us from ordinary to extraordinary. But make no mistake about it and hear me on this. We all have extraordinary capabilities and extraordinary potential. That's why you're here. That's why you were delivered here with those gifts to express that potential. You just need to believe it and raise the expectations you have of yourself. What you have achieved thus far in your life is but a fraction of what you're truly capable of. Raise your expectations and raise it for all those around you. They might need to borrow your belief to activate their true potential. Point out their gifts, their strengths, their capabilities. Show them what you see. Have them see what you see. And then point out the high bar you know that they can reach. You will be surprised and awe-inspired by just how high, quite often beyond even the high bar of your wildly high expectations that you have for them, that they will reach and they will succeed. Coaches, I hope you found that interesting. I know it's really more a refresher on something you already know, but today you may be hearing it at just the right time. So let me give you the takeaways. Here's the first one. The Pygmalion effect. Treat people as if they're already the way you want them to be. When you treat people in this way, the effects are striking. It's the concept of self-fulfilling prophecy. This is called the Pygmalion Effect. And here's the second takeaway. This is scientifically proven, the Pygmalion Effect. He talks about intellectual bloomers. In an experiment on academic performance in a class, about a third of the class was randomly identified as intellectual bloomers. And here's what happened. At the end of the year, the randomly selected students that were perceived as intellectual bloomers, got substantially higher academic results than the rest of the class. The teacher believed these randomly selected students had greater ability, and the students, in turn, believed that as well and outperformed the other students. Here's another takeaway. People don't see their own potential. It's the forest and trees dilemma. Oftentimes, people are just too close to their own situation and can't see their potential. Your athletes all have the potential and capacity they need. <laughs> That's not the problem, right? Mindset is the problem. Making them see and believe in their potential. Embracing a belief in themselves. So here's the action step. Leadership is the ability to get extraordinary results from average people by making people believe in themselves. You know, a few years ago, I got to know Jimmy Johnson when he was coaching the Dallas Cowboys. Boy, he was the master at this. So here's a thought. Think about a couple of your athletes that are underperforming. You got them in mind? Is it because they don't believe in themselves? What specifically can you do to raise their expectations? Maybe it's a heart-to-heart talk. You might change a life. Well, until next time.
Hör Gürben.